Hey everyone, and welcome back to the Yankee Air Pirate Podcast. I'm Pat Stratton, and I'm your host. The last time on the podcast, we talked about the first contact my father had with another American pilot, Paul Galanti. He made contact with my father while risking severe torture for this act of leadership. This episode will pick up the story back at the Heartbreak Hotel where my father was cold, sick, and had severely infected wounds in both his arms from the torture that he had endured. We'll also be discussing the Mad Bomber of Hanoi confession in the bowing picture, which ended up on the cover of Life magazine in April of 1967. This was the first time my family knew my father was still alive. This episode is a good example of the extremes the North Vietnamese communists would go to for the purposes of propaganda. So let's pick up the story again back at the Heartbreak Hotel. episode with me today. I really appreciate it. Good to be here. Um, last time, at the end of the last episode, we were talking about uh, your time in the high security area of Wallow Prison, uh, Heartbreak Hotel. Um, and you had just had f- your first contact with another POW, Paul Galani. And I'm wondering now, what what's your condition at this point? Um, are you, you've been in, in the POW system now for about three weeks, uh, maybe a little more. Um, what are you wearing? What kind of clothes do you have at that point? Are you still wearing your flight suit? Are you comfortable at all? Or is it just still a living hell? Basically, I'm living in my own skin. I have my original T-shirt that I was wearing when I was shot down and my boxer shorts. I'm barefooted. There's not another stitch of clothing. Uh, the pad I'm sleeping on is bare cement. I am cold. I am sick. And I am scared still. And I'm very tired. So I'm not a happy camper. Have you been able to bathe or take a shower or take care of yourself in any way, shape, or form up to this point in time? I have had no access whatsoever to anything to even wash my hands, let alone take a shower. The only sanitation I've been able to do is to urinate on my wrists, which have become infected, and to cup some of the urine and splash it onto uh, the uh, wounds on my elbows, which have also become infected. So you were using your urine to try to sanitize the wounds and try to keep that under control? I've been told that urine could be used as a uh, sanitation device if in desperation. Yeah, yeah, I've heard that too. So at the end of the last episode, I talked about, I thought we would be getting into a more of a routine of being a POW at this point, and I was very wrong by that. Um, every day seems like it's bringing a new adventure to you, and uh, none of them sound fun. Um you did get your morale boosted, though, by Paul Galani when he was able to make contact with you, your first contact with an American pilot uh, since being in Vietnam. And 
he was able to communicate what the tap code was to you. And I'm just curious, I, I know you told me it took you a few days to figure out exactly what that meant and, and, and how to do that. Did you ever get an opportunity to use the tap code to communicate with any of the other prisoners in a, in a location near you? The only use I got of the tap code initially was to practice tapping because apparently Paul Galanti and his cellmate were hauled out of Heartbreak Hotel uh, immediately after they were caught communicating with me that initial time. And also they moved the Vietnamese pilot who was next to me in the cell, Nguyen Quoc Dot. They moved Max out also, so there was no one to talk to. So... So soon after that communication with Paul, you, you were left alone in that heartbreak hotel section again and n no way to communicate with anybody again. You're correct. In effect, I was isolated as well as in solitary. Okay. And did, did you ever find out years later uh, what they did to Paul Galani because he showed leadership and communicated with you? Well, according to the Vietnamese, if you break any of the camp regulations, you're severely punished. And my understanding from Paul was that he was severely punished. In other words, he was tortured and beaten. Okay. Yeah, well, that was certainly a really courageous thing for Paul to do and uh, to reach out to you, even though he knew he was risking a lot. Um and now you're back alone in the Heartbreak Hotel uh, section of Wallow Prison. How long did that last? How long did you remain isolated and solitary at Wallow? Uh, my guess is that I spent about three weeks there in isolation. Uh, interrogations would take place anytime in a 24-hour period. Uh, at random, it appeared to me to keep me off balance. And, and sometimes it appeared to me to give the night duty watch an English lesson, but I never understood the lack of system. Right. Well, so your entire time there uh, in Heartbreak Hotel, did they ever give you any additional clothes? Because I've seen a lot of pictures of you and the other POWs wearing these long striped pajamas and, and other outfits uh, and you told me before you were still just wearing your un uh, underwear and a T-shirt at, at that point. Uh, did there come a point in time where they gave you any additional clothing there at Wallow? Well, I think that what they did was try to figure out whether I was going to live or die or not. Once they determined I was going to live, they gave me an issue of clothing, I'd say maybe about 10 days uh, into my captivity. They gave me a straw mat to put down on the bed pad, one blanket that you could see through. They gave me a spoon, a tin cup that was apparently donated by Korea, a Korean-Vietnamese friendship cup. They gave me two T-shirts, two boxer shorts, both black in color. They gave uh, me one, what we called a mess dress. Actually, they looked like striped pajamas, vertical stripes purple and black, uh, a regular uh, top and bottom that you used to wear in the old days. There were uh, no socks at all, and sandals, rubber-soled uh, sandals that were made out of rubber tires with a strap across the 
toes. We called them Ho Chi Minh sandals. That was the issue. Okay, so 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 that's your issue. And so how much longer did this time in not only solitary confinement, but really in complete and total isolation because there were no prisoners in, in either of the cells uh, on either side of you, so you had no way to communicate with anyone, even though you knew the tap code. Um, how much longer did you spend there in, in Heartbreak Hotel? I think the time in Heartbreak Hotel was five to six weeks total. I never did get a cellmate for six months. So did, did there come a time where they moved you out of Heartbreak Hotel? And can, can you tell me a little bit about uh, how that all came about? Well, one night, a uh, Vietnamese guard came to me, and he made a cutting motion across each of my wrists and then uh, rolled his hands like he was rolling up a, a ball of some kind. And I was dumbfounded. I didn't know what he was doing. And by pushing and shoving, he told me that the, the cutting motion across the wrist meant put on my long shirt, and the roll-up meant that I was to pack up things. So I, he showed me how to fold in Vietnamese boot camp style, how to fold my clothes and put them inside the mat, roll the mat up, tuck it under my arm. He put a blindfold in blindfolded me, put a blindfold on my eyes, and me marched out of Heartbreak Hotel. Never thank God to see it again. Okay. And so where did they take you? Did they put you in the back of a vehicle at that point? Well, they marched me out of the Wallow Complex into the Sally Port again, put me in the back of some kind of a vehicle. I was blindfolded. I couldn't tell what kind it was. And they drove me off to some place that was near an airport because we could hear occasional uh, single-engine jet aircraft taking off had to be Gilam Airport. So I knew that uh, I was on the edge of the, the town of Hanoi, somewhere near the Red River. Okay. And, and what, when they moved you to this new location, was there another POW that was moved with you that you're aware of, or were you moved alone? As far as I know, I was alone in the vehicle, and uh, we went into this camp, which we had named the zoo, uh, and I was put into solitary confinement, and also I was isolated. There was no one on either side of the cell. Okay. So why do you figure they went to the time and the effort to move you from one prison to another, still in isolation. I mean, I could get it if they're moving you from solitary and isolation in one prison and then moving you to another prison and putting you in the general population, for example. But why, why would, in retrospect, why would they go to that effort to move you from one camp to another, still in isolation? I think they kept me in isolation because they had plans for me that I didn't recognized at the time to use me in a propaganda extravaganza, and they didn't want that disrupted by me communicating with any old-timer prison. But also we discovered that until 1969, from 1964 to 1969, as a matter of policy, they kept people isolated, separated, and moving around from camp to camp. The idea was to keep us disorganized and they were very fearful of our leadership 
that would lead some kind of a mutiny or, or revolt. Okay. All right. Well, that, that makes sense. Um, so when you are moved now from Wallow Prison to the zoo, uh, what's your health like now? Um, how, how are your wounds coming along? Are they improving at all, or are you still gravely ill at this point? At this point, I was, in fact, gravely ill. I was running a high temperature, which would peak out about 3 in the afternoon. Uh, there were red lines running underneath my skin from uh, the two wounds on my elbows and the two wounds on my wrists. Uh, they were surrounded with pus. They were inflamed. They were clearly infected. They were extremely painful. Um, so... I was suffering from that. I had a boil in each nostril of my nose, which left it a gigantic size. Uh, I was uh, in a high fever as far as I could determine. I was a sick man. Yeah, you told me at one point that you thought you actually might lose one of your arms because of the infection was so bad, right? It was my judgment that uh, my right arm I would lose just from the the size of the infection and uh, the, the location, I thought I'd lose the arm at the shoulder. And, and, and so what, did they ever give you any medical care or do anything to, to try to help you with that? Or what, were you just simply treating yourself by having to urinate and try to clean the wounds out with that? After about maybe a... Five days at the zoo, they uh, let me wash myself at a cistern, which was placed directly outside of our cell row, and with a bar of what looked to me like laundry soap, uh, gave me a small towel about the size of a hand towel, which I was able to retain, and after I cleaned myself up there, they took me down to an interrogation room, and a medic showed up, uh, checked the wounds, clucked his tongue, cleaned them out with some kind of an antiseptic, and put uh, bandages on my wrists and bandages on my elbows. And that was the last time I saw a medic for quite a while. Okay, so they're they're trying to do something for you to even even as primitive as that sounds. Um, so it sounds like they have plans for you, but still at this point, you really didn't know what those plans were, correct? I was more valuable, apparently, at that point alive than I was dead. It was obvious they, they had some kind of plan for me, and uh, at, I really was sick enough I didn't care. I was just glad uh, to get some control over the wounds. Okay. Um so you've told me a lot about this one junior uh, North Vietnamese officer. Uh, you, at least you believe he's a junior officer, the rabbit. Um, tell me about this guy. What was he like, and, and what, was, what was he doing with you during interrogations, during torture sessions? Uh, how, what was his participation in that, and what do you think he was around to try to accomplish? Well, the rabbit was kind of a mystery. He was always in the background. He was about six feet tall. 
He obviously was of mixed blood. He had a little bit of white blood in him. Actually, quite a handsome guy. Uh, quiet, uh, always alert, observing what was going on, never interrupting an interrogator, uh, never interrupting any beating or torture session. In fact, he used to leave the room when they were going to work me over. Um, it came out uh, later on that he was apparently... Uh, uh, an author or in their public affairs section because he was writing a confession for me, it turned out. But you didn't know that at the time. No, I was answering questions, making up stories that have me write down what I had just said, and he would collect those scraps of paper. So he was taking note, or I was giving him notes, of everything that I had said and collecting them, and apparently he pasted them all together and used his imagination and uh, wrote a nifty confession for me. So so when you're getting together for these sessions uh, and they're asking you all these questions, when, when they got to a point where they asked you a question that you refused to answer, did uh, I'm just trying to picture what things are like now. Did, did they um, clear the room? and get the, the guards that were responsible for the torture back in there and work you over until you, you would start to cooperate with their line of questioning again? Is that happening again? No, that didn't happen probably for three or four days. The, the daily sessions, when you would bog down, when you would say an obvious lie and they'd catch you in it, you'd get a rifle butt on the back of the head You'd get uh, slugged, your ears boxed, pushed off the stool onto the floor, kicked, stomped, something like that. But compared to the torture sessions in Wallow, the main prison, uh, this was just sort of like playing flag football. Okay. And, and what kind of things are they asking you? What kind of information did they seem to be after from you? You know, very interestingly, they were not really asking for anything that made sense. For example, they had my kneeboard card and they wanted to know who I was flying with. John Parks' name was on my kneeboard. They knew that I was flying with Parks. So there was no sense in lying about John Parks. They asked, who are you, who, who were you, was your wingman? Who were you flying with? Who's right. the guy that flew over the rice paddy? Uh, they would ask, uh, what's a cluster bomb unit? What's a CBU? I'd never seen one. I hadn't the faintest idea what it was. But, of course, I made up something. Um, then they'd go randomly off to uh, who's mutinying on the ship. Uh, no one was mutinying on the ship that I know of. But I made up somebody for them. Right. How, how many hours a day did they, did they bring you into this, this chamber and grill you and talk to you and, and look for feedback. Was that all day? This is all day and all night, except for about a, a two-hour period in the afternoon when the whole of North Vietnam took a siesta. And at this point where they're going through all this with you, how are you being treated as far as food and water? Um, are you getting enough of either? That was perhaps the only good thing about the move to the zoo. I started getting two meals a day. I get a bowl of uh, pumpkin soup, 
that fill my water. I had a one-quarter, pardon me, a one-quart water bottle or teapot, actually, that they gave me at the zoo to retain. And so I had, uh, actually, that was filled twice a day. So I got food twice a day. And uh, I got a little chunk of bread about the size of your hand. The war was all over rice. Everybody said it thinks we got rice all the time, but that's why they wanted South Vietnam. They wanted rice. Gotcha. So um, one day the rabbit, uh, you were telling me this story before, one day the rabbit uh, came in. He seemed very proud, that, and he had something that he wanted to share with you. Can can you uh, describe what that was? Oh, I certainly can. That was an amazing session. Uh, uh, the rabbit was the lead interrogator for the first time. He came off the wall, and he showed me a printed sheet of paper and said, read this. And I read it, and by God, it was my confession. It was oh, five or six pages long. And what were, what were they asking you to confess to? Well, basically, I was uh, confessing to the carpet bombing of Hanoi in December of 1966 in an area that Lyndon Johnson promised them he would never bomb. In other words, the city of Hanoi. Right. So th- this is the mad bomber of Hanoi incident, and they're, they're trying to label you as that person. Uh, when in fact you had never even flown a mission over Hanoi itself, had you? Never had. I had been the, uh, scheduled for an alpha strike in the district of Hanoi, uh, and my airplane malfunctioned. I had to dump my ordnance load and return to the ship. So I never flew over Hanoi in my life except the day I left. So um, what was your reaction then when he handed you the written confession, the confession that he had written uh, for you, uh, what did you say to him? Well, first of all, in reading it, I, uh, I think I laughed for the first time since I landed in Vietnam because it was so contradictory, so stupid, so outlandishly false, so dumb, and basically incoherent uh, that I couldn't believe that any government would publish it for any reason whatsoever, and it certainly wouldn't uh, appeal to any American as a piece of true propaganda. So I just kind of laughed, and I said to him, you can't be serious. This is a bunch of crap. They had they had an awful lot of ordnance on that uh, small A four Skyhawk, didn't they? Well, they put every piece of ordnance that was that the Skyhawk was capable of carrying individually. They put on the aircraft to be flown all at the same time. <laughs> the airplane would never get off the ground. Right. Okay. So when when you uh, took the posture that you uh, we're, n- we're not going to go through with what they wanted you to do. What uh, was the result of that? Well, I told him it was nonsense. I wasn't going to have any part of it. And he says, yes, you are. You're going to read this in front of a stadium full of citizens, and then you're going to go on to a gr- small group of intellectuals and give the same presentation. And I laughed, and I said, I certainly am not. And he said, you are. 
And I said, you're crazy because I speak five languages, which also I lie. I speak English. I failed French and Spanish. <laughs> I know how to use Latin and Greek. So there's five languages. I really wasn't lying, but I was exaggerating somewhat. And I told him I'd speak out in my five languages and tell them exactly what they did to me. And that caused him pause. And they went back, and things were quiet for a while, and they went outside, came back in, regrouped, and said, well, you're going to tape record this. And I said, no, that I wouldn't. And at that point, you had asked about who was doing the torturing and the beating. At that point, they produced Vegetable Vic, who walked in silently in the back of the room with his straps and bars that he used to uh, wrap people up in the ropes, the head torturer. So Vegetable Vic, he was the one that tortured you back over at the Wallow Prison, so they brought him over to the zoo to do the same thing? Oh, absolutely. I apparently was worth their best. I took one look at that and decided that I did not do too well with Vic the last few times that I met him, where I was basically out of control. That's why I was in the bad situation I was in now. Right. And I realized that I didn't want to get in that situation again. I had to keep my marbles. So I allowed Howes, I'd love to make a tape recording because I figured I could screw that one up. Right. And, and so when did they start taping, taping that uh, confession? Was it that day or did they come back later? Oh, it was that day. It was within an hour. They had two people to monitor what I was saying on the tape recorder with headphones plugged into the recording. They had an interrogator that was leading it, and the rabbit was sort of like the orchestra leader. And how long did that all take them to get everything that they wanted on tape? I think they started taping after the siesta period, and we taped till dark, so I don't know what time of year or how long that was, say maybe five or six hours, because I kept screwing it up as often as I could, and they'd stop, and they'd re-record, and uh, I, I made life miserable for them. I tried to keep my voice in a monotone. I tried to sound like I was either drunk or drugged or something, and uh, I would intentionally mispronounce words when they caught me saying something outlandish, like using their president's name as horseshit instead of Ho Chi Minh. Uh, they would stop, erase that, and start over again. So it took a while. Okay. And, and so when all that finished up, what happened? Did they just pack up their gear and disappear on you and leave you in solitary again? Amazingly enough, that's exactly what happened. They, everybody went away, and including Vegetable Vic, thank God. And I just went back to the cell all by myself, solitary and isolation. And... Then what, what happened next? When, when was the next time you heard anything about this tape, what they were going to do with it? Um, what, was it a matter of, of days or weeks? Oh, a matter of days. I think one or two days. Uh, after the siesta period, probably a day and a half after the siesta period, a, uh, a guard showed, two guards showed up. At my cell, they had a bowl of water, and they had a bar of soap and a razor, a safety razor. And they said to me, shave. And I told them that I wouldn't. And they tackled me and put me on the floor. One guy sat on me. The other guy shaved me. 
And fortunately, he did a miserable job, and it was a lousy blade <laughs> because he left razor burn all over me. So my face was a thing of rare beauty. I was razor burned, and I held, had a bulbous infected nose. Right. At this point, did they tell you why they wanted you to shave? Had they communicated anything to you? Absolutely nothing. Guards never talked to you. They were penalized if they even acknowledged your existence. Uh, the next thing uh, I know, a guard came to me and gave me the, the cut across the wrist sign after the, the barber left. Okay, that's that's and to that put meant, on your that long. meant to suit up. Yeah, put on your long. Put on the long jaw, the pajamas. Okay, striped pajamas. Okay, so which I did, and then uh, they took a look at me and went out. They got a sweatshirt. Apparently, I looked too skinny, and they threw a sweatshirt at me, and I put it on, put the shirt back on. They looked at me. I was too skinny again. They threw another sweatshirt at me, and I put that on. Then they gave me some socks to put on my feet under my Ho Chi Minh sandals. And then they put a blindfold on me, and they marched me out and put me in the back of a vehicle. And when they put you in the back of, of the vehicle, I know you're blindfolded, but did you get the sense that there were any other POWs there in the vehicle with you, or are you alone? A uh, nice part about uh, the nose, particularly a big infected nose, is you can look uh, down the side underneath the blindfold. You can see people's feet, and if you hold your head back, you can see a little bit. And I could check there were no other people. There was one guard in the, in the truck bed with me, and we obviously were driving around in the city of Hanoi. You could tell by the noise and the traffic. Okay. And where did you end up? Where did they take you? I have no idea. We probably, my guess is, travel maybe 20 or 30 minutes. For all I know, they were driving around in a circle. And we ended up still blindfolded. But looking under my nose, we went into some sort of a, it looked like assembly hall or small theater. Okay. And then did, did they get you out of the truck and bring you into that uh, building? Took me out of the truck and they bought me in with a uh, later kind of determined it had to have been a stage door because I went in to an area that looked like the wing of a, a stage. And I was surrounded by debris, uh, sh uh, rocket shells, bullpup uh, that had misfired. Are you still blindfolded at that still point? Still blindfolded. I'm looking down on, under my nose, the, under the blindfold. Okay. And then uh, what happens next? How long was it before you figured out what was going on there? Well, eventually, Frenchie showed up, uh, who was one of the interrogators, and he was in his dress uniform. Uh, noise I heard, uh, obviously there was a large group of people there. When I finally saw him, it looked like to me there was maybe 100, 150 people there. Um, there was a stage and a... Um, a table there with maybe four people sitting behind the table. Obviously, they were the high rollers. Uh, to me, it was a press conference. There were loudspeakers on either side of the stage. This I saw when they pushed me out. And the first thing that happened, I heard a guy basically giving a speech, uh, mixed uh, Vietnamese, French, and English. The English part I understood, but he was describing Vietnamese history and American war crimes and war criminals 
and then told people that they were going to meet a Yankee air pirate. And it, my ears perked up because I was now my blindfold was taken off and I was the only one in the room. Right. So uh, they first of all said, now you listen to him. And reading about it later, apparently all the people in the press that were invited there leapt up and uh, ran to the front to get uh, eyeball to eyeball with me. And the guy told him to sit down because they're going to listen to the tape recording. Right. They played the tape. And then I was the third part of the show. They pushed me out. And before, uh, when when they had done the recording in the uh, back in the cells, they were telling me that I was going to meet people and I would do an oriental polite bow to anyone I met. Right. So they pushed me out on the stage and they yelled at me, bow. And in my mind, as soon as I saw the mess of uh, wreckage of weapons and stuff, I smelled a bad smell. I knew that I was being had and decided I'd play the Manchurian candidate like I was drugged. Right. And so this is the famous bowing incident that uh, made its way onto the cover of Life Life magazine in 1967, uh, a photo taken by a guy by the name of Lee Lockwood. Um, So when they pushed you out onto that stage and you decided to play the Manchurian candidate, uh, can you describe for us exactly what you did and what your intent was? As soon as I got out there, I stared at the back wall where the back wall met the ceiling, not blinking my eyes and then watching the whole crowd of press people rushing forward with their cameras. I didn't see one friendly face out there and decided that if I yelled out something in English about this is a farce, that I'd end up in worse shape than I was now. So when I decided that I would play the Manchurian candidate, I figured, well, I'll just act like I'm drugged, like I'm brainwashed. So I bowed 90 degrees, and then I turned to the head table, bowed 90 degrees, went bowed to the back wall 90 degrees, bowed to the guard standing next to me and became the precursor of mooning in Hanoi and mooned the head table, turned front again, braced myself, and this went two more times. Boxed the compass, bowing 90 degrees. Did they tell you? Were they yelling out to continue? As soon as I got through making a box in the compass one, I'd stand. Guard didn't know what to do because he knew something was wrong. He yelled bow again, which was golden, because now I was following orders and did the same thing a third time. Right. And so now this is the famous bowing incident, and I've read articles written by uh, Lee Lockwood uh, where he stated that uh, your appearance and the way you were behaving and acting was very disturbing. And um, he or no one else, for that matter, could figure out what was going on, but they knew something was wrong. So... I guess your mission was accomplished from that perspective. It does. It did. The intent was to discredit the so-called confession, and it was successful in doing that. Yeah. And then um, also, and I don't think you knew this at the time, but there were photographers in there taking pictures, 
including uh, Lee Lockwood, but there was also a, a video film crew in there, and a video of this event made it out and got back to the United States and was played on the evening news not long after uh, this incident took place. I, Lee Lockwood uh, said in, in his article that it was a Japanese film crew. Okay. And that was later bought by uh, East Germans, and they incorporated it in one of their propaganda films. But the snip that you saw on television had to have come from the Japanese. Yeah. And, and I actually, I remember that. I was very young at the time. I was only five or six years old, but obviously very focused on what was going on in the Vietnam War. And so I do have memories uh, of seeing that on TV. And I, I know mom did for sure, because that was uh, very disturbing um, to her. I, I guess it was kind of a mixed blessing in a way. Um, she knew you were alive. And up until then, she wasn't really sure if you were alive or not. Um, so she found out you're alive, but the pictures that she saw and the video she saw was really disturbing. And, and I, I remember that time in the 60s very well. So I, I can speak to that for sure. It, it really shook mom up. And um, she, um, she got a heads up just prior to the Life Magazine article coming up, as I recall, uh, it was either the naval intelligence officer that was assigned as her liaison or the CIA officer uh, assigned as her CIA liaison uh, called her and let her know that the Life magazine article was coming out. Is, is that how you recall? That is correct. A, Commander Bob uh, Burroughs gave her a call, alerted her to the fact that the magazine was coming out, that that picture was going to be in there and suggested that she get it as soon as it hit the uh, newsstands. Okay. So she got a neighbor, uh, Pat Foy, uh, got together with her, and uh, these two ladies went down and cleaned out the drugstore of all the Life magazine copies and bought them back. Yeah. Yep, uh, I, I sure remember that. Um, and we were back at the house, and Mom had a big stack of the Life magazine article, uh, or the, the pictures, and we didn't know what to make of it. It, it was a scary time. Um, so back over in Vietnam, after you uh, put on this performance, and they ended up hauling you away, taking you out of the theater, taking you back to the zoo, they couldn't have been too happy with you. What what was their response, and what did they say to you when they got you back? Well, the first thing was I don't think they immediately realized how badly they had been ha uh, had. Um, the second thing was they wanted to know why I did not bow prettily, <laughs> as they were <laughs> as they had instructed me to, and gave me uh, uh, time to learn how to do it the correct way. I informed them that I was scared of cameras. I didn't like the press. They didn't tell me that these people were going to be there. And as a result, I, I panicked and uh, decided that I would uh, just automatically went and did uh, my normal Catholic thing of a profound 90-degree bow. And they had uh, a few Catholics left over up in Hanoi and knew that we were kind of strange and did things like that. So they kind of bought it. 
But what really saved me from going any farther than that was somebody asked for a handwritten copy, my handwriting, of the confession. And they didn't have one because the rabbit wrote it. I didn't write it. Right. And and so what did they do when they wanted a handwritten uh, document uh, in your handwriting? What happened next? Well, at that point, I figured I was on a roll and I could really screw up a handwritten thing. So I went back and said, you know, we'll do it. And I started writing and screwing it up, but used the Palma method that I hadn't used since the second grade in high school. So anyone who looked at it would know that it might be my handwriting, but it wasn't the normal way I wrote. Uh, Because I made so many mistakes and they had to make so many corrections, it took all night. They had a uh, motorcycle dispatch rider standing by to run off with the thing. About dawn, we completed it. They gave it to the dispatch rider, and off he went into the sunrise. Right, okay. And then uh, apparently they went and they provided that handwritten confession to whoever it was that was asking for it. I, I assume so, but that was the last time. I was glad to be just done with the mess. Yeah, So this is really the first time in the Vietnam War where I think the public back in the United States uh, started to become really concerned and aware that there was some sort of serious uh, uh, mistreatment of of our POWs over in Vietnam. Um, That's when um, there, there, there was a lot of activism uh, from POW wives and, and people were getting really concerned with the way that you were being treated. And the Vietnamese were not allowing uh, any agencies that could be independently trusted to come in and evaluate how you were treated. It, it's, do you recall seeing anybody come in to, to evaluate uh, the way you were treated? There were no approved international organizations that were permitted to come in and see how we were treated, report on how we were treated, or to help with our treatment. The only foreigners that came in were a group of Cubans who came in and spent a year torturing a select group, trying to show the Vietnamese how to keep us permanently under their thumb. Yeah. So you didn't know it at the time, but uh, your Manchurian candidate uh, game plan worked, and uh, so it was mission accomplished, um, but you didn't really know that. How, how, at the time, how long did it take until you figured out that people back in the United States really were becoming concerned and knew something was wrong? Well, my first indication was that it had been somewhat successful was the fact that they were torturing and beating me up to have me see visiting, as they called them, delegation. These were uh, peaceniks from various countries that were helping them. Wilfred Burchette from Australia, uh, for example, David Dellinger from the United States, all kinds of kooks and nuts were coming through. And uh, they would give me five questions that they would write the answers to and say, you're going to be asked these questions you give these answers and basically get out of there. And they were trying to show that I was still alive and well. Got you. And, and so you started getting a sense for you, you made some kind of impact 
Um, how long was it before you were able to independently confirm that um, it, it worked by talking to um, a newly shot down uh, pilot that came into the camp system later? It was six months later when a new shoot down made it to the camp and, and I got in contact with him and told me what a, a wonderful impact it had made. Not a wonderful on my family, but as far as accomplishing its objective. Right. Okay. Well, wow. That's an incredible story. Um, I really appreciate you talking about that with me today. Um, I'm, I, every time I have the conversation, I learn a little bit more detail, and it, it's certainly an incredible story. And um, I appreciate you going through it again. So uh, let's leave it off here for this time, and we'll pick it up next week. Okay, okay great. It's a pleasure being with you. All right. Love you. Love you, pal.